Welcome to this sermon podcast from Myo Baptist Church, and thank you for listening to today's message. We pray that God's Word will be an encouragement to you and a reminder that the Bible has all the answers to living a successful and fulfilled life. Again, thanks for listening. We now join the service in progress. Brother Pat, you want to take that? You can comment on my message as I go. Just hold the mic up there. Or we can just leave it right there. That's a good idea. So, you say, Pastor, do you really get nervous during the fireworks? You don't know. First of all, if anything goes wrong, guess what? There's going to be 200 fingers pointing at... Right? Uh Uh-huh. Think about it, folks. I mean, just, just think about it. I mean, we got, what, four or five guys out there in the field that light up torches. And out in front of them is 25 tons of dynamite, TNT, gunpowder, napalm. And what, what's to be nervous about, right? Yeah, what, 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 could, what could go wrong? I can't imagine. And then when you know the guys that have the torches in their hands. <laughs> oh, I appreciate them very much, very much. This is the third part of, I guess you could call it a trilogy, on America. The first message I referenced, Evan Sayet, oddly enough, a Jew. Oddly enough, born in New York City. Oddly enough, raised, grew up extremely liberal until 9-11. And he explains in videos on YouTube why he changed. But the change was uh, unbelievable. I don't know if anybody, and he's not a politician, but I've never heard anybody explain liberalism better than him. And he, if you'll remember, says the theme of liberals, their mantra, their core belief is indiscriminateness. That is what they hold to more than anything. And by indiscriminateness, we mean they, their mantra is non-judgmentalism. It's no one's right to judge, okay? That, that's the essence of what it means to be a liberal, what it means to be a progressive. Do not judge. Therefore, they see Christians as the biggest bigots on the face of the earth because we judge. We are discerning. We are able to distinguish between good and evil. They are not. We are, e- we are able, because of God's word, to distinguish between better and best. We are able to distinguish lifestyles that tend towards success as opposed to lifestyles that tend towards failure. But none of that matters to them. They have a hatred of Christians particularly because we show discernment. We learned that in the first message. If you didn't listen to that message, you need to go back online and listen to it. Not because of me, because most of the material wasn't me. Most of the material was from this Evan Say It, but I don't know of anybody that articulates it better. Then last week, made a lot of reference to another man that has influenced me, because I've been studying liberalism all this year. And his name is Oz Guinness. 
He is from uh, Ireland, and he was raised as a, his parents were medical missionaries in China. He, uh, though, resides in America now, loves America, and knows American history probably way better than 90% of the Americans. And we looked at America from a little bit of a different perspective last week. And we looked at what he focused on, the three pillars of America. That what America is known for more than anything else is the word freedom. I mean, all during the 4th of July celebrations, it's, it's freedom. Freedom, freedom, freedom. It is our theme. It is our mantra as a nation. And it's a good, a good theme, good mantra. But he said the key to freedom, and this is based on what our founding fathers said and the facts thereafter, the key to freedom is virtue. Without virtue, you cannot have freedom. And then he said the key to virtue is faith. So all three are required. They all interact one with another. Freedom requires virtue. Virtue requires faith. And as we get away from virtue, which very much we are, and as we get away from faith, sadly, very much of which we are, then our freedom is at stake. And we covered that last week. This week, we're going to be focused on a lot of material written by Ravi Zacharias. He's from India, born in India, raised in India. Got saved as a young man, moved to Canada, grew up in Canada, but now resides in the United States. He's an evangelical. He goes around speaking at universities. I, there's a video of him speaking at UCLA. There's a video of him speaking at Dartmouth. Uh, he is on college campuses. None of these three men would I agree with probably a, a lot of doctrine, But when it comes to America and their understanding of our country and what our country is going through, I think in their own respective ways, they are nailing it. This morning, with the help of Ravi Zacharias, we're going to look at the danger of a nation not knowing shame. The inability of people to be shamed. That presents a clear and present problem. problem in our country. The danger of a nation not knowing shame. In your Bibles, I'm going to ask that you turn in the Old Testament. It's the fourth to last book in the Old Testament, Zephaniah. Fourth to the last book in the Old Testament. We're going to look in Zephaniah chapter 3. Chapter 3 and verse number 1. Now, most often I have the words on the screen, but I have chosen not to go that route for these three messages. But that's just a reminder. Always bring your Bibles. I mean, I know it's easy when I have the, all the verses up there to, to, to go with that. But it, it's just, I don't want us to get out of the habit of bringing our Bibles to, to church. I, I, maybe that's old school, but it's, it's worked and it, it would continue to work. But anyway, in Zephaniah chapter 3, verse number 1. This is God's condemnation of Jerusalem. Which under wicked kings have drifted away from God. You think that might relate to us in the United States? You'll see. In Zephaniah chapter 3, verse number 1, the condemnation begins. Woe to her that is filthy and polluted, to the oppressing city, Jerusalem. She obeyed not the voice. She received not correction. She trusted not in the Lord. She drew not near to her God. The indictment continues, verse number 3. Her princes within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves. They gnaw not the bones till the morrow. 
Her prophets are light and treacherous persons. Her priests have polluted the sanctuary. They have done violence to the law. And listen to verse number 5 carefully. The just Lord is in the midst thereof. He will do not iniquity. Every morning doth he bring his judgment to light. He faileth not. But that last phrase, this is so telling. But the unjust knoweth not shame. The indictment on Jerusalem at this time is they have become unjust. And they are unjust because they don't know shame. Or because they don't know shame, they are unjust. You can look at it either way. But when an individual loses the capacity to experience shame, they are capable of doing anything because there is no shame. When an entire nation of people lose the capacity to experience shame, that nation is at great risk. The Jews here at Jerusalem have rebelled against God. In verse number 1, he describes them as being filthy and polluted. In verse number 2, they have drifted away from God. In verse number 3, he says, your political leaders have become corrupt. In verse number 4, he says, your spiritual leaders have become corrupt. And they face, therefore, in verse number 5, the judgment of God because they knew no shame. It's a very dangerous situation. When a group of people lose the capacity to experience shame. And where there is no standard for decency, no standard for morality, then you have no shame. It's the presence of of shame that serves to motivate a people towards virtue. You don't want to be shamed by the bad that you do, so that will incline you to being a more virtuous individual. Therefore, the presence of shame helps to keep a culture prosperous and peaceful. Shame motivates people to do right. But again, if you have no standard for decency, no standard for for morality, then what's going to happen? Debauchery, licentiousness will fill the void. And I see, sadly, great parallels in the way Jerusalem was described in those verses as to what we see in this country today. We have become a nation that is filthy and polluted. I mean, I think back to my childhood just driving down the highways. You never saw many of the billboards that you see today. You know, adult this and all all sorts of stuff. You know what I'm talking about. We, like Jerusalem, have rejected God. Have not many of our political leaders become corrupt today like theirs were? And have not, like them, many of our spiritual leaders today become corrupt? And all because we become a nation of no shame. So without shame, is it any wonder that profanity is on the rise? Read on the, the news sites, the, the CNN, uh, no, don't read CNN, read on uh, Fox News and the other news sites, read about how vo- profanity is now being thought of as a good thing. You're a more powerful politician if you 
use profanity intentionally. Vulgarity is on the rise. Nudity is on the rise. I mentioned last week 10,000 naked bike riders in Portland. 10,000 of them. Corruption is on the rise. We're becoming a nation of no shame. Let me explain. Atlantic Monthly Magazine had an article way back in the 80s, and it stated this. Listen carefully, because, folks, what I'm talking about this morning is affecting every man and woman, boy and girl in this room. You're not allowed to ignore it. It is going to affect you. The Atlantic Monthly article back in the 80s stated this. The goal of culture is to provide a coherent set of answers to the questions that confront us. Let me read that again. Quote, the goal of culture. We live in a culture. We're looking, collectively, we're looking for answers. The goal of culture is to provide a coherent set of answers to the questions that confront us. We look for it individually, but also collectively. That's why we are in a cultural war. Because in our nation, as we look for these answers to to make sense of life, we're headed in two different directions. Now, our founding fathers, till the 1960s, the answers to cultural questions that brought us together as a country were found in the Bible. They, they, They were sacred. What kind of questions do we as individuals and therefore as a culture ask? Where did we come from? Well, up until about the 1960s, the vast majority of people will tell you we are a creation of God. God created the heavens and the earth, and he created man and woman. So that's a big question. Where did we come from? Culture asks that question. Then leads to the second question. Okay, then why are we here? From our founding fathers up until about the 1960s, the standard answer was, well, God brought us here, and we're here to honor and glorify him. That goes a long way towards getting people to do right, act right, and be right. And then the third question that culture is looking for the answer to is, okay, when it's all over, where are we going? And the answer from the founding fathers to about the 1960s is to heaven or hell, depending on whether you accept or reject Jesus Christ. God was the standard by which we measured all things. And when we didn't measure up, We had a sense of shame. And that shame kept people motivated to doing right. That made our culture up until about the 1960s a safe and stable and successful place. Detroit was booming. I was reading about 150,000 employees, I think, at the River Rouge plant back in, in, in the early days. Okay, And now you look at those plants, they're closed down. It used to be that people would leave their doors unlocked at night and never even think about locking them. You know, now we got to make sure not only are they locked, but we have the deadbolt locked, okay? Something's going on here. And it's how culture is answering these questions. But the 60s, how many of you remember the 60s? I remember it quite, quite well. The 60s brought about a cultural revolution. In other words, where our culture was looking for answers began to change. A cultural revolution is one that makes a decisive break with the shared meanings of the past. 
We had shared meanings of the past, and I just reviewed them with you. Where did we come from? God. Why are we here? God. Where are we going to go? Well, it depends on our relationship with God. But since the 1960s, the answers to cultural questions are no longer found within the sacred. It is found within the secular. Secular meaning without God. Let's ask those same questions today to people today. Where did we come from? What do schools teach all across America? We came from God in the beginning. God, right? No. Used to. In the public schools, yes. But now, the best they can come up with is the Big Bang Theory. We're the result of the Big Bang Theory. We're the result of evolution. We're the result, we are here because of blind chance. That's hard for us believers to understand. But try to understand the mind of the unsaved. They think we are here by blind chance. They don't believe in God. They don't believe in creation. They don't believe we're going to answer to God. We are here by, they would probably say by sheer luck. Good luck or bad luck, I guess, would be depending on how you, how you look at it. It's hard for me as a Christian to understand how they think. I have to force myself to think, I can't, I can't think that way. But they do. So their answer, and society is more and more embracing this, the secular, their answer is where do we come from is the Big Bang Theory, evolution. Why are we here? Oh, that's an easy one. Well, self-fulfillment. Self-actualization. What do we hear a lot about these days? Self-esteem. It ain't about God, because according to them, He don't exist. So if He don't exist, it's all about me. And this is where our culture is coming together now with these ideas. And where are we going? The third question In their minds, nowhere. This is all there is. We have seen this cultural revelation, or revolution. Shared shared thoughts that brought us together as a nation. One nation under God. Can that be truthfully said today? Can't even pray in public schools today. Experts today no, no longer see us as even a Christian nation. We are often today referred to as a post-Christian nation. What does it mean then for us to be a secular nation? It means religious ideas and institutions have lost their social significance. It used to be that I was, for lack of better wording, proud to tell people that I was a pastor. And people generally responded with, oh, that, that, that's great. I'm hesitant to tell people that I'm a pastor now. It's like, oh, you're, you're one of those bigots. You're one of those that's prejudiced. The absence of religious significance in our country has resulted in the abolition of the sanctity of life, the removal of prayer from our public schools, the death of the nuclear family, one man married to one woman for life, It has resulted in increased crime, increased taxes, increased mental and physical health issues. Religious ideas and the whole idea of bringing religion into the public square has rapidly lost its significance. Let let me give you an illustration of what I'm talking about. Let's say we tune into a TV program that's a panel discussion, and they're discussing, discussing social issues of the day. 
And on this panel sits a college professor, a journalist, reporter, an actor, a community organizer, and a pastor, okay? On this panel, college professor, journalist, actor, community organizer, and a pastor. Who in that group is going to be viewed automatically by most people today as narrow-minded, outdated, and as a bigot? You don't have to think long. Who is going to be viewed as objective and open-minded? It's a no-brainer. Christian thinking has been marginalized to the point that in a great many ways it's lost its social significance. In fact, the world is having a greater influence on the church than the church is on the world. I hope Myo Baptist Church will be a distinct uh, disconnect from that. That we are here to influence this community, not this community to influence us. We now live in a Secular culture, ever-growing secular culture that is imploding on itself. There's a writer-poet, Steve Turner. He took a satirical look at our modern culture, a satirical look at our modern culture. Let me read you this entire poem. This is how he sees America today. Satirical look. Marx, Freud, Darwin. We believe everything is okay as long as you don't hurt anyone to the best of your definition of hurt, and to the best of your knowledge. We believe in sex before, during, and after marriage. We believe in the therapy of sin. We believe in the adu- that adultery is fun. We believe that sodomy is okay. We believe that taboos are taboo. We believe that everything, everything's getting better despite evidence to the contrary. The evidence must be investigated, and you can prove anything with evidence. We believe there's something in horoscopes, UFOs, and bent spoons. Jesus was a good man, just like Buddha, Mohammed, and ourselves. He was a good moral teacher, though we think his good morals were bad. We believe that all religions are basically the same, at least the one that we read was. They all believe in love, goodness, the only difference on matters of creation, sin, heaven, hell, God, and salvation. We believe that after death comes nothing, because when you ask the dead what happens, they say nothing. If death is not the end, if the dead have lied, then it is compulsory heaven for all except perhaps Hitler, Stalin, and Genghis Khan. We believe in Masters and Johnson. What's selected is average. What average is normal. What's normal is good. We believe in total disarmament. We believe there are direct links between warfare and bloodshed. Americans should beat their guns into tractors and the Russians would be sure to follow. We believe that man is essentially good. It's only his behavior that lets him down. This is the fault of society. Society is the fault of conditions. Conditions are the fault of society. You say they're going crazy. Exactly. That's my point. We believe that each man must find the truth that is right for him. Reality will adapt accordingly. The universe will readjust. History will alter. We believe that there is no absolute truth except the truth that there is no absolute truth. We believe in the rejection of creeds and the flowering of individual thought. And then he concludes with this. If chance be the father of all flesh, disaster is his rainbow in the sky. And when you hear state of emergency, sniper kills ten, troops on rampage, whites go looting, 
It is but the sound of man worshiping his maker, meaning himself. Ravi Zacharias says, and I quote, Secularism means the eviction of God from the public square where it isn't given a chance at its discourse. Secularism will obviously lead to a society without shame or guilt. I heard Ravi Zacharias say that he had met a man that had been a part of Saddam Hussein's inner circle. And he said, I was taught to kill without feeling, feeling any shame. He said, I was trained to do that. Folks, think about it. It's the part of our culture where people know no shame that make us afraid to go into certain areas because those people have no shame in attacking you. They cause us to lock our cars and homes at night because they have no shame in stealing from you. That makes us get it in writing because they have no shame in being fraudulent towards you. And that makes us distrustful of everyone. The secular world hates the fact that Christians are taught to be discerning. That we are quite capable, thanks to the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, to determine that this is right, this is wrong, this is evil, this is good. The secular world hates that. Let me give you an example. The trial of Larry Flint, remember him? He was the editor of Hustler magazine, a pornographic magazine. And he was brought to trial. There were people that were complaining that this was pornography. Larry Flint's attorney wanted to erase this idea of discernment and moral judgments. So he asked the plaintiff if he had ever been to an art gallery. And the plaintiff, who was complaining about Larry Flint's pornography, answered yes. He asked, well, have you ever paid to get in to an art gallery? And the plaintiff said, well, yes. And he asked the plaintiff, in this art gallery, were there disrobed people in the paintings or statues? And he answered, yes. And I'm not suggesting that that's okay by giving you this illustration, but there, there is a distinction. And, but the point is well made here. He then asked the plaintiff, please explain to the jury why that is art and Mr. Flint's magazine is pornography. You see how they play their games, folks? You see how they play their games. The man on the witness stand was unable to give an answer. And a lot of Christians would say, well, he just proved that they're right and we're wrong. No, listen. Let me give you a fantastic illustration. It's a crude illustration, but I'm going to use it anyway. It's an illustration from C.S. Lewis, Christian author, writer, and he wrote a book, Pilgrim's Regress, not Pilgrim's Progress, but Pilgrim's Regress. And C.S. Lewis, the Christian writer, gave this illustration that a waiter serves this man a breakfast. And the man who's eating the breakfast comments to the waiter how good and nutritious the milk is that he was served. And the waiter says, well, you realize that's really just the secretion of a cow. And he says, 
you know cows secrete other fluids. Whether milk or liquid waste, they're both secretions. You see the point they're trying to make? The man didn't know how to respond. And then the man made the mistake of commenting on how good the eggs were. Okay. C.S. Lewis in that book says the following. This is so telling. If you get nothing out of what else is said this morning, get this. The waiter, I mean the man that was served, says, Reason came riding in on a horse and rescued me. The waiter is a liar simply because he doesn't know the difference between what nature meant for nourishment and what nature meant for garbage. And that's where we are in America today. That's exactly where we are today. And if you're not careful, you'll fall into the trap because the world is having a greater influence on many of you more than the Word of God and God Himself is. And that's the battle of us pastors today. Look, I was, Sharon and I were listening yesterday. We were coming home from taking Erin to the airport. Huh, she's gone. How? No. <laughs> we had a great time with my daughter. I love her dearly. And if she were here, I would have said the same thing and she would have laughed. But anyway, we're coming home and we're listening to this um, podcast, uh, Tom Rainer podcast, Christian podcast. He's a big shot in the Southern Baptist Convention. You know what the latest trend is uh, among Christians? demeaning the idea that church is important. The world has so influenced This whole podcast, am I right about that, Sharon? This whole podcast was about the idea that, that some Christians today are even saying that, hey, look, you don't, you, know, you don't need to go to church. In fact, going to church is wrong. That's how much the world has influenced us today. A secular society has no ability to discern between right and wrong, good or evil, and behaviors that lead to success as opposed to the behaviors that lead to failure. And that's a result of a nation that lacks shame or guilt. Shame and guilt are the two rails that guide the train of moral decency. Eliminate those two, two tracks and you have a train wreck. When a secular Culture loses shame and guilt. Obscenity runs rampant. Nudity runs rampant. Promiscuity runs rampant. Drugs run rampant. Laziness runs rampant. Dishonesty runs rampant. Vulgarity runs rampant. Anger runs rampant. So what is the answer? Very quickly, we've got to conclude. Turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. Say, Pastor, it, looks, it doesn't look good. Well, hold on to your, hold your hat. Turn to Acts chapter 17. Let's get a Bible perspective on how we should respond. We're looking at the Apostle Paul, who was in the midst of a society very similar to ours, a very secular, idolatry-prone society, talking about Athens, his time in Athens. How Paul handles his situation in Athens is the model for you and I today, and I implore you to embrace what I'm about to share with you. Do not be discouraged. Do not be depressed. Are we concerned about the direction of our nation? Absolutely. Was Paul concerned about Athens? Absolutely. But look at what happens here. Acts chapter 17, verse number 16. We'll wrap this up. Now, while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. A society very much like ours. 
This is the model that we're to follow. Therefore disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons and in the market daily with them that met with him. Skip down to verse number 22. Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens, he's preaching to these people. I believe that in all things ye are too superstitious. he's, He's calling it like he sees it. For as I passed by... And beheld your devotions, I found an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. I mean, they had, a, they had an altar to the unknown God just in case they miss one. Whom therefore you ignorantly worship. He's not pulling any punches. Don't ask for me to get up here and pull punches on Sunday or any other time. Him I declare unto you. And then he gives them the gospel. God that made the world and all the things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelling not in temples made with hands, and on and on he goes, he preaches them. So Paul was in the same situation we're in today. Today people are worshiping idols, whether it's money, cars, clothes, houses, vacations, hunting, shopping, whatever. So here's the model for us, folks. Paul was stirred. He had an awareness of what was going on around him a spiritual sensitivity about him, and he was motivated. He was stirred. He was not discouraged. He was not depressed. He was stirred. Don't you get discouraged. Don't you get depressed. You, like Paul, and he is our model, need to be stirred. And I think I can tell you honestly this morning, I am more Concerned about our country than ever before, but at the same time, I am more stirred to make a difference with the life that God allows for me to have, however long it might be. Secondly, we see, not not only was he stirred, but secondly, he acted. He did something. He went to the synagogues. He went to the marketplace. He intentionally interacted with lost people. And we, too, need to act. We do not need to retreat within our homes, within our churches, within ourselves. We don't need to assume defeat. We, too, need to act. And thirdly, lastly, he proclaimed the gospel. He proclaimed the gospel. That, it's the gospel that's powerful, folks. It's the gospel that has the power to change lives, to make liberals conservatives, to make lost people save people. And when enough people get saved, the gospel changes cultures. We need to proclaim the gospel. We don't need to waste our time arguing politics. We need to proclaim the gospel, folks. When a person's heart gets right, then their politics will in time get right as well. I believe that with all my heart. So go out of here this morning. The picture is not pretty, but it's not the time to be depressed, not the time to even be discouraged. It's a time to be like Paul modeled for us and God was pleased with it and he wrote it 2,000 years ago and it's been preserved miraculously for 2,000 years so that we're reading it today and God wants you and me to be stirred as well. To be stirred, to act, to do something, not sit at home and whine and complain and cuss the, the, the TV, but to spread the gospel. Our heads are bowed as we stand, please. Thank you for listening to today's message. We hope that the service was a blessing to you and that you were encouraged by God's Word. If you have any questions about Myo Baptist Church, please contact us anytime. 
You can find contact information on our website at myobaptistchurch.com. Thanks for listening.